We've ended this week talking about so-called vaccine wars and vaccine nationalism and vaccine envy. But it started uh, with the appalling number of 100,000 people succumbing to COVID-19. 100,000 people, almost exactly, I think exactly a year after the first British national who hadn't travelled abroad died of the coronavirus. These are terrible numbers. They're terrible by any statistics. We are one of the worst countries in the world when it comes to mortality rates here. Uh, Despite repeated lockdowns, despite repeated efforts, despite the very good news of the vaccine rollout in the UK, we are continuing to lose people. There's no one better to kick off this very difficult conversation about grief. Grief management, to coin a terrible phrase, than Cardinal Vincent Nichols. He's the Archbishop of Westminster, President of the Catholic Bishops' Conference of England and Wales. So to you and I, he is the leader of the Catholic Church in England and Wales. We last spoke, I think, at the end of June. Um, And it was sunny. And we were looking forward to truncated, but at least summer holidays of a sort. And I think by that stage, we'd lost maybe 45,000 people or so. So here we are in the dead of winter, short days, wet days, a a, a severe lockdown that will last for quite a bit longer and 100,000 plus deaths. How do you help people who've been directly personally affected by this? What can you say to them to make it better? Well, the first thing I'd like to say is I understand it because it's touched my life too. A very close friend of mine uh, developed an infection actually in June and from June to, to she died in December, I was never able to go to see her. Uh, you know, I talked on a mobile phone from outside one of the nursing homes where she sat in the window. By the time we were allowed to visit her, she was already unconscious. And, and that sense of being torn apart from somebody as they make this crucial last journey of their life, I know is terrible. And I, it, it, it is some of the most tragic things that we see of people who have given themselves to each other, loved each other deeply, shared life, kept apart in this terrible time. And then, of course, when it comes to mourning their death, they don't have the opportunity to do those very essential things like talk about mm. Talk about the person who's died with their wider family, with their friends, with their local community. I remember when when my father died, we spent three days talking about him. Mm. My brother and I just sat there and neighbours came in and they put food on the table. And one old friend of my dad sat in the corner and drank whiskey for three days. But we talked about him. And that's what's missing, that, that ability to hug each other, both physically and spiritually and mentally, as it were. And, and, it, and it is awful. What do we do? We try and make the limited resources of the church as widely as, and as readily available as we can. We could do it often now symbolically. So on Wednesday, I lit a candle in Westminster Cathedral. The cathedral was empty but a lot of people were taking part. And that candle is, first of all, a sign of we will not forget, Mm. remember. But it's also, and importantly, a sign of our hope. And hope that faith brings is that this death is not the end of the person's life. It's an entry into a fuller life, and we will be together again. 
And that's the promise of the Christian faith. And so that candle stands both for not forgetting, but also for grasping that hope, even in the darkest of days, which are these, as you say. I mean, it's often been compared to a war, this battle against COVID-19. But in a war, uh, you can still hug each other. You can still have that human contact. You yeah. can still go dancing, you know, on a Saturday night, even as the bombs might be falling. You know, the, what's so awful about this disease is that it undermines the most basic human transaction, you know, conversation, closeness, hugs, yeah. you know, a kiss on the cheek yeah. or whatever. I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean is that true. what makes it so difficult you know, it is, it is. for you in as a man a, of faith to deal with? Yeah. Let alone us. War, yeah, in a war, you know your enemy. Your enemy is visible. You, you can predict maybe what they're going to do. You can take precautions. This is so difficult because it's invisible, it's silent, you don't know where it is. And we're, I think, heroic, actually. I think we're heroic in, in the way that people have the resilience. Now, you know, for me, faith is a crucial part of that resilience. And that's why I've been keen that as long as our churches are scrupulously safe, and they are if they're properly maintained, that space is available to people. I sit in Westminster Cathedral and I watch people come in. People come in there to sit in tranquility and to find a space other than the small flats probably in which mm. they It's mostly the poor that come to Westminster Cathedral. But they also come to keep company because this gift of faith opens up for us a relationship with Christ. And they go in there and they sit and they, they keep company with him. And he too is, is not visible but he too is present. And it's a, a, a tremendous counter to the invisibility of the virus is the, the, the invisibility but presence of this one to whom we entrust ourselves in faith. Do you think but that this the cathedral is a, is a marvelous experience. You right. see people drawing in resilience and generosity for what they're going to do next. Do you think this has turned people away from their faith or drawn it to faith? Well, you know, a good friend of mine whose father just yesterday was released from a hospital after struggling with this effects of the virus. He said, I've never seen so much prayer. I've never seen so many rosary beads as in that intensive care ward that he was in. So I think it's often the case that when we, when we know our own absolute um, fallibility, our own mortality, then we reach out for something that we believe and trust is stronger than us and has that promise of more to come. So I think the, the regular practice of faith, I think we're going to have to rebuild again. But the invitation of faith, the instinct, the instinct to have a deeper horizon, have a longer horizon to life, I think that actually is coming a bit to the surface at this time. And interestingly, in our last discussions with the with the government, they recognised that the the importance of, the, of that openness of churches and that invitation of faith, importance to resilience and importance to people's generosity of service to others. There might be some people who say, you know, that's that's all fine and it's very important if you're if you have faith to go yeah. and be able to sit in a church and contemplate your life and the next life and so on. But also for your mental health, you know, it's important to go to to be able to, you know, at a social distance, be together with your fellow human beings, for instance, you know, I don't know, in a restaurant or no, a I, bar of sorts. Yeah, I agree with you. I agree with you. 
but the precondition for any church being open is it has to be safe. You know, and, and Public Health England have told us that churches are some of the safest places if they are properly observing you know, the precautions. So I wish the restaurants across the road were open, of course I do. Mm. But you know, the other thing that we keep our eye on very much is people who, for whom restaurant life is irrelevant because they don't have the cash. I mean, just the, the provision that this Diocese of Westminster is, is making in terms of food. We've gone from 50 projects of helping people with food to 250. Wow. Yeah. We've gone, one parish has increased the use of its food bank by 400% since March. You know, and now we're trying to build a service of what we call a road to resilience. So how do you use the limited food that you get as well as possible? so that it lasts and you become more self-reliant and resilient. There are many, many families who, for the first time in their experience, are without a sufficient income and having to turn for help. And we, along with many, many other people in society, are doing our best to meet that and meet it with dignity and respect. So it's not a, a cheap handout, but it's an attempt to stand alongside somebody and support them, as well as providing them with some food. As you say, the virus is a common enemy, but the results in how we deal with it are not common. Uh, wealthy families living in larger homes tend to fare better than poorer ones living in more cramped accommodation, perhaps multi-generational accommodation. The same thing with the vaccine. Who has access to this vaccine? The vast majority of the planet still doesn't, but it is a global pandemic. When you see, when you witness the kind of so-called vaccine wars being fought at the moment, between companies and governments, between the EU and, to some extent, the UK. What's your response as a man of faith? Well, obviously, I think one of the things that this period has done has heightened a sense of inequality in, across our society. One of the things I love is that the dignity and the importance of people who work in, if you like, very basic jobs, filling the shelves, driving the bin lorries, cleaning the streets, they have been appreciated much more in this period. And, and that recognition of the dignity of their work is something we, we shouldn't lose. It is true. They also want more money, by the way. They, they don't want us to clap for them. They want to be paid more. Yeah, well, I, I'm not surprised. Do you agree with true. that? It is true that some people go through this pandemic on a luxury yacht and others are just clinging to life rafts, right? Life rafts. But I agree with those people who have spoken and said, you know, yes, uh, it's responsible of the government to secure adequate supplies. But it seems to me, in some of the numbers, we're well over what is absolutely necessary for this country. And I was glad to hear you assert that the government will consider how it helps the poorest in, the, in other countries. Because as the commentators have said, this is a pandemic that excuses mm. nobody. And nobody, therefore, should be excluded from the remedies because they're poor. That's absolute moral imperative for us. Indeed. Now, I don't know if you're on Twitter, uh, and I should know, but the Archbishop of Canterbury, uh, I'm just being told that you are on Twitter, but your colleague, the Archbishop of Canterbury, is also on Twitter, and he has just tweeted yesterday, the European Union was originally inspired by Christian social teaching at the heart of which is solidarity. Seeking to control the export of vaccines undercuts the EU's basic ethics. They need to work together with others. Is that a tweet that you would retweet? I would. But I would also say that I think the EU lost its Christian perspective 20 years ago. 
it became basically an economic block and a mm. fortress. And, and I think that inspiration that came in the post-war years and in the desire to build common trade as a means of ensuring that there was never hostility again, that inspiration went a long time ago. It should be recovered. And this might be a testing point, this attitude to the most needy in the world and the advantage of a vaccination program that excludes nobody. Yes. That's interesting. So are you saying the EU has lost its way? Yes. The, the EU lost its way some time ago when it concentrated purely on the economic solidarity and the drive for political unity. I think it, it, it lost its original inspiration at that time, yes. Did you vote for Brexit? <laughs> no, no, come on. Okay. Uh, Cardinal, yeah. I wonder if you would stay with us uh, after the break, because I really want to talk about the very personal issues of grievance and how to deal with grief um, in these very difficult times. Um, so if you if you could hang around, that would be fantastic. Fascinating to talk to you. Fan thank you very much indeed. Just a reminder then that I'm Matt Fry. We're talking to Cardinal Vincent Nichols. Uh, and the time here on LBC is now exactly 12.17. I'm happy to say that we've got Cardinal Vincent Nichols, the Archbishop of Westminster and President of the Catholic Bishops' Conference of England and Wales, still with us. Uh, thank you very much for staying on the programme, uh, Cardinal Nichols. One thing I want to talk about, and it sounds like something, if you'd mentioned it a year ago, from a kind of black mirror sci-fi horror film, the idea of a Zoom funeral. Yeah. A Zoom funeral. Yeah. yeah. Have you, you must have done quite a few of them. They must be awful. They are. They How do you are. deal with them? Well, you deal with them as best you can. You deal with them, you know that um, people will at least be visually and we hope kind of emotionally taking part in this as well. Uh, for, the, for the Catholic community, it's not uncommon now in this last year, we've had to develop a, a regular thing of live streaming the celebration of Mass. And um, if I may just divert slightly, people take to it quite differently. One young woman said to her parish priest, I love it. She said, I, I, I get my cup of coffee and a cigarette and I go to mass. Another yeah. elderly lady said, who hadn't been able physically to go to mass, 103, she said she gets up, puts on her best clothes, puts on her hat, goes downstairs and joins in the mass through a television set. But so, so it, it's not impossible to link up but when the pressure and the high emotions of a funeral are there, it's really, really very difficult. And again, I don't want to make this too personal, but since March, I think there are over 20 priests of this diocese have died. Now, some of them were very elderly. 20 priests? Yeah. In now, your diocese them, alone? Yes, but not all of them directly from COVID. Yeah. But nevertheless, all of those funerals have been online. The Archbishop of Glasgow died 10 days ago. His funeral was online. One of my assistant bishops died later the, earlier this week. His funeral in Ireland was on, online, on live streaming. And we just try and make the best of it. But it's so important, I think, that wherever people join in, they do join in, if at all possible, in company. Mm. So they're with somebody else. So they can, if they want to, they can respond to the prayers. <clears throat> At least then they can talk to each other and have a cup of tea or something stronger when it's finished. It's a it, it's a poor substitute, but it's better than nothing. The thing that really gets me every time when I see it on television is people dying alone in hospital. Yeah. yeah. Where yeah. the nurses and the doctors, but especially the nurses, suddenly have to be both nurse and priest and family yeah. member. 
yeah, yeah, that's true. And and this is where they are heroic. And, uh, you know, I, I think it's true that there's <clears throat> quite a, a high number of nurses on our public health service who have faith backgrounds. There's, there's lots of Filipino mm. nurses who are Catholics, and they come to church afterwards. They, they restore themselves through the, the wellsprings of their faith. But all nurses do it. There's no exceptions, I don't think. Fortunately, some of our priests can still go in, but in very strict circumstances. And it, it, is, it is just awful. I, I know it for myself, as I said earlier. Not being able to get near to somebody who's a close friend for four months, five months, and then only see them again when they were actually unconscious and um, in the last mm, hours. Terrible. It is, yeah. You yeah. spoke in the past about lighting a candle by yourself in Westminster Cathedral. I still remember very clearly that extraordinary image of the Pope. I yeah. think it was at Easter. That's right. You know, in St. Yeah. Peter's, on yeah. his own, yeah. lighting that the, candle. And in the rain as well. Just and in the rain. Poignant, and that was such a vivid image, and and that was where he said, you know, we are in this together, we are in this together, and and it must we've got to learn the lessons of our solidarity one with another across the distinctions and the divisions. We've got to build something better. But are we learning that lesson? Because again, this is a week uh, where we uh, haven't learned that lesson. Yeah, it is. It is internationally. You're absolutely right. But we've got to keep plugging away. We've got to build back something better, something that is more sensitive to each other and something in which those with resources take more responsibility for those who don't have any at the moment. Um, Pope Francis issued a book recently, Let Us Dream, in which he threw out all sorts of provocative suggestions about business, about international trade, about popular movements, and of how we, we've got to kind of loosen up the way in which power is shared in society to make, to make it more responsive to the reality and not just to the desire to hang on to whatever it is we have, especially when it's power. That was very much the discussion at the beginning of the pandemic. There was some very you know, yeah. lofty, optimistic, um, poignant yeah. talk yeah. about how this pandemic yeah. will change us. Yeah. That talk seems to have disappeared largely, hasn't it, as we're kind of terrified by well, second and third waves, by new variants of the virus and by not getting enough of the vaccine. Well, I think you're right. And in the first lockdown, in a way, was a challenge. You know, certainly for lots of the ministry that I'm involved in and, and the, the Diocese of Westminster and many other religious bodies, it was a real challenge. And there was great imagination and great initiative. This is just a grind. This is just tough going. And I hope that as we come out, it won't just be with a sense of relief, but it will be with a sense of renewed purpose as well. That would be my hope, and that's what I'll keep plugging away at. And just finally, I know that, you know, there are statistics, and behind every statistics there is a, a conglomeration of personal tragedies, all different in their own way. When you heard about that terrible statistic of 100,000 people who had died in Britain as a result of covid what went through your mind? Well, the phrase that went through my mind was, you know, the land weeps. We just weep for this. And, and there's no other reaction. There's no other reaction. I mean, generations have suffered this before. If you think of some of the terrible plagues that have happened, even in this country, centuries ago. But that was my overall impression, that the very fabric of this 
land and, and country which we're so proud and which we love so much, it, it, it's like it's, it's weeping at this terrible moment, which sums up so much of the struggle of the, since last March, but also holds the struggle that still lies ahead. But that was a pivotal moment, I think. And that's why I very much wanted to be in the cathedral. And I just wanted to say, let's weep together and please let's pray together. Cardinal Vincent Nickers, thank you much for your wise and wonderful words there. Thank you very much indeed. And we hope to speak to you again, hopefully under less of a cloud.